Hey, this is Victor Antonio, and welcome to a special episode of the Sales Influence Podcast. Today, I get the pleasure of interviewing Oren Clough. Now, if you don't know who Oren Clough is, he is the author of Pitch Anything, one of the best books, I think, on the market when it comes to structuring a message and a persuasive presentation. Now, Oren is back with a new book called Flip the Script. I've read the book and I'm telling you, it is worth the read. Now, I have a lot of questions for Oren and in this interview, I jump right into it and I get some fantastic energies, but be warned, Oren is full of energy. Man, this is a high energy type of interview, so get ready. You know, I, I read your book several years ago, like millions of people have, and what I really like was, I'm an engineer by background, so you actually had structure to what you were actually teaching, which is what I really love. It was almost like a blueprint roadmap. So you came from the technology space, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Right, so you understand, because I, I saw some of the, you know, as I was reading Flip the Script, I read the book in three sittings, okay, read the book. Uh, and How was it? How was it? Dude, super exciting. I got to tell you that you're going to be shocked at my favorite chapter, and I'm going to go into just a little bit. You're going to be, okay. uh, what do you think people say will be their favorite chapter? What do you think is, I mean, it's all good. I, I don't know. I haven't talked to people who have read it yet. This is just, uh, uh, it's all unknown to me. This is, anything could happen. People could go, I hated it. I loved it. I, no, I haven't talked to really anybody that's that's you know read it and knows what they're looking at. So no, I'm no, excited to get feedback. Mon money in the bank, Oren. Money in the bank. I'm not being uh, polite. Money in the bank. Uh, I think in this book you did something different, and you you can tell me a little bit about it. There there are a lot of stories in there, and then you're yeah. also sharing a lot of. It, I'll say contextual sales situations where you're actually yeah. sharing your script. So question number one is. You know, that seems to be a different approach this time in the book, right? Yeah, because I wrote Pitch Anything and I started writing Pitch Anything 2, but then I realized I already wrote Pitch Anything 1, and why does the world need Pitch Anything 2? And then people started going, I love the story, the last chapter in Pitch Anything. So they said, just do that. Tell those stories. So I set a way too high goal of making every chapter in Flip the Script as good as the best chapter in Pitch Anything. Love it. So it, it just, the, the objective was too high and it almost killed me, but it came out, uh, yeah, so it's different from Pitch Anything uh, because it puts you into those situations and it shows you what you should, what is possible and what you should do in these kinds of very common situations and I also try to make it fun and what I liked about it as you went through the chapters you told stories within those chapters uh, my favorite is the uh, Mahalo example and I'll just leave it yeah. there. that was a favorite that was a good one actually uh, but then towards the end when you say put it all together you tell more stories and you give more in context stuff and so I want yeah. people listening to podcasts to realize that it's not just say okay here's a formula go apply it you like you put them in the situation, and so you know why flip the script? I mean, let people know why the title and why this second book. Because today, so much can be done in sales. You can. Uh, let me just say this: uh, with there's seven thousand marketing tech companies whose objective is to genuinely help you get leads, and I see people drowning in leads. It's like uh, this vision of these these hikers in Kilimanjaro on these ice floats, and they run out of water. They're hiking on ice, but they're dying of thirst. Everybody has leads, 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 <laughs> and there's zero conversion. So 
the old script of where the buyer would listen to you. You could get to the end of the the thing just like they told you to do at Hewlett Packard and Microsoft and sales training and Zig Ziglar and close ends up in only one thing happening. Sounds good. We're really interested. Could you send over the PowerPoint and a proposal? Uh, I'll show it to my partner, my committee, the board of directors, some mythological person you never heard of before. <laughs> and we'll get back to you if we have any questions in a week or so. And you send over the proposal and the PowerPoint diligently. Once they know the features, the benefits, the value proposition and the price, they go, eh, okay, this is something I could do. And then they go look for it cheaper or free. That's the way the world works today. Okay. So you can, the buyer has the script, the new script and, and salespeople are using the old script. And, and that's and so one of the things you really said, hit on. You really hit on that, that, you know, the, uh, we talked before we jumped out of this podcast that one of the testimonials you got is Matt Dixon of the CEB, yeah. the challenger sale. And if you remember the book, you know, they talk about buyers are 57% into the buying cycle. Forrester puts them at 80%. In other words, buyers know more. So you can't use the same ABC always be closing. Your thoughts? Yeah. So, in fact, not only can you not use ABC closing, uh, the my sense of it is, you know, what I wrote in Pitch Anything is people want what they can't have. People chase that which moves away from them. And people only value that which they pay for, if you remember. Uh, and, and flip the script. So Pitch Anything showed you what was possible and it opened the doors to a different kind of world. Uh, flip the script shows you scripts of how to execute that plan, what to say exactly to create the scenarios where the buyer wants what you have and it's his idea to move forward. So, so uh, I give this example, but th this happens all the time. Uh, guy comes into our office, we pitch him, right? We buy and sell companies and we pitch him on, on buying his company. He has to think about it. It's never a one meeting, yes, they, they have a CFO and they have a board of directors and it's a big ordeal. Anyway, he leaves, right? And uh, it comes back in the door like 60 seconds later, which isn't good, as you know, like having people leave because it means, you know, they, they, I guess they went to the car to get their gun, right? Like, why don't you leave and come back in? And he takes out his checkbook and he writes a big check, right? And, and he goes, let's get started. Let's get the process started. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I didn't pitch. I didn't ask for a yes. I didn't propose a price. And the guy just walks back in and says, let's get started. That's inception. It's his idea. He took all the information I gave him, the way I gave it to him, in the order that I gave it to him, in the scripts that I used. And he said, eh, I like these guys. I want to get started on his own. And, and when I'll, somebody... Yeah, go, go no, ahead. No, no, I wanted to emphasize that because you threw out the, the, the first the first title you threw it out there, the first chapter, right, Inception, that it's their idea, and you want them to come towards you because as you move towards them, it'll just repel them. That's sales reactance, right? They know you're hungry. They can smell it on your breath that you're really desperate for the sale. You're saying let it be their idea. And so talk to me more about the Inception concept. And by the way, before you do that, I just, I just got to bring this up, Warren, because this, this is uh, you, you had this in the book. And so if you're listening to this, this is how good Flip the Script is. He's, Oren is making this bold claim, and I'm quoting you now. It says, I developed a revolutionary approach, a way, a way to win every deal without spending a single moment selling or trying to close, a way to sell 
without selling it all. The buyer feels it's his or her idea. They close themselves. That's the essence of flip the script. So let's begin with the inception concept. Just a little deeper on that one. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, where this started is people started asking me, hey, Orrin, you know, when I'm speaking at conferences or in interviews, what's your best close? And I started thinking, ah, about it's, well, it's, no, it's, well, it's it. <laughs> you know what? I don't have a close. I haven't closed a deal in years. I just take people through the process until they go, how do we get started? That's, really what, I love, that's what I loved about your book, by the way. It wasn't like 101 ways to close a sale. I don't know how to close a sale. When you get to the end and everybody's scratching their head, I'll just say, you know what? Uh, looks like I'm getting the hook on time. We probably need to understand at this point, what should we be doing together? Mm-hmm. And then I'll leave it at that. And I've given them the path to solving their problem with an expert, with somebody who solved it a thousand times before, mm-hmm. who has a certain set of values and has shown them how to buy or how to go away. Mm-hmm. And once, and, and that's the inception process, setting yourself up as an expert who understands their problem, showing that you've solved that kind of problem a thousand times before, it's almost boring to solve it. Letting them know that if they don't solve the problem with you or someone else, the, it's the doomsday machine is coming for them. And uh, uh, certainly setting up a time constraint, showing them how to buy from me and not caring. Caring, but not caring. A detachment. And that's, you know, inception. And so let, let me jump to uh, number three. Chapter three, we talk about rules of certainty. And I like yeah. that because, oh, yeah, because you were talking about that. That Because I believe there is that balance, right, of certainty and uncertainty, anxiety. And it's a way of how do you make them comfortable. Talk to me about that. So I think when uh, one sense it is when people are trying to uh, give the buyer the sense that what we're promising really will happen. Right? Then, then things go wrong, right? Usually uh, that is done with discounting, right? So uncertainty uh, um, is covered for when you reduce the price so until somebody goes, how bad can it be, right? Um, you know, it's the lowest price and they have a pretty good chance of getting the results I want. And so the reason people have uncertainty about you is they don't believe two things. One, that you're an expert, and two, that you've done this a thousand times. Once they believe those two things, their certainty goes almost to 100%. But most people don't show the buyer that they're an expert. They tell them. It's a nuanced difference, right? What's the difference between telling someone I'm an expert versus showing them? Right? Telling sounds like this. We're really good at what we do. We won these awards. These are the people that are our management team. Google us. We have 21,000 likes. That is not showing someone how you deal with their problem. That's telling them that uh, through a third party and proxy that you're good at what you do. So yeah. if I, I wanted to add this because yeah. one of the strategies you have in the book is the flash roll, the 60-second yeah. flash roll, so, right? So when people try and show a buyer that they're good at what they do, 
they end up uh, doing one of two things. Um, actually working on the problem, which I never recommend. Never work on a buyer's problem. You will not be rewarded for it. You will be punished for it. We think we're showing them how good we are at their job. We're giving them free product. Right? By the way, re register, register what he just said. Really register what Orrin just said. Yeah, I mean, do you agree? I, oh, 100%. That's why I want to put an emphasis on it. Oh, yeah. Because it's we like free consulting. This is how we lose deals, is when we start working to show people how good we are at doing the work. Deal lost. Thank you, Orrin. Really appreciate the work. Uh, now we understand what we should do, or we understand what we need, and we're going to go find someone cheaper or free. Right. I, by uh, the way, I always say break it up into the what and the how. Tell them what they need to be doing. But yeah. once you start showing them the how, the deal's dead. They're not going to so, hire you. Yeah. So what I recommend in the book, and, and the other way they do, is they tell people in a way that they're teaching them about their solution. Well, you know, what we do is we um, use Zapier to create this plugin, and we use the accounting SaaS software, and then we hook it up to the IRS current regulations. And so, uh, you know, so you can see this is how we create a SaaS solution that does better accounting for you. And look here, these are the modules that plug in. So most people show it for comprehension. What I say is describe a problem and the solution rapidly in about 200 words. Uh, now for comprehension, but to demonstrate competency. Right? Uh, I don't mind giving the example from the book because everyone's uh, familiar with it and it's a fun read anyway. If you think about My Cousin Vinny, the movie. And by, and by the way, anybody who can throw Otzi the Iceman and a My Cousin Vinny reference in the book is all right in my book. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. So, so My Cousin Vinny, they have Marissa Torme up on the uh, witness stand, right? Mm -hmm. And she is, uh, she's seen this crime you know, related to this vehicle. And the prosecutor says, hey, uh, she's not a credible witness because she doesn't understand cars well enough to be able to determine one car versus another, right? And he's so, to prove this, he, and she's, a, you know, and, and she says she is. So he says, he asks her a question, you know, whatever it is, what would the ignition timing be on a 1964 Chevy uh, in this and this situation, you know, um, and, and what would the timing be? And she says, can't answer the question. He says, see, I told you, she's not a good witness. And she goes, it's a fake question because in 1964, Chevy didn't make a Bel Air. It was only made it in 1975 or 65, but in 1965, if you were going to set the ignition timing, it would be three, you know, 36 degrees top dead center. And that's what would be correct if that car was made during that year. Right. And the judge goes, oh my God. And the prosecutor even has to say, she's acceptable. You're on. Correct. correct. So giving someone a problem and a solution in your industry at a faster pace than you could be making it up mm -hmm. as if you described this a thousand times before. Give somebody a sense that you're an expert. I'll give you a, a better example. I had a woman on this morning. Uh, oh, actually, Jen from um, uh, from Jeffrey's podcast, right? And she has a Tesla mm -hmm. and she had a problem with the Tesla. So, okay, you take it to one mechanic and he scratches his head and yeah, you know, we'll put it in for diagnostics. We'll call you on Monday and let you know what we think. You go to another mechanic and he looks at it, puts his hands in his pockets, kicks a tire a little bit, you know, rubs his chin. He goes, yeah. You know, when they did these in 2017, they didn't really realize that they were going to run out of transmogrifiers. Uh, and then they, you know, had to order them from GM. And the GM transmogrifiers <laughs> aren't really capable of getting to 112 degrees. And when they do that, they start to fail, right? If you look over here, this light over here blinking shouldn't be doing that. That shows us the 21C thing. That's why we've got 100 of them in the back. People bring in this problem all the time. If you leave it here, it's 700 bucks. I'll have it for you ready tomorrow morning. 
totally different pitch. Totally different pitch. And you go, this guy has done this a thousand goddamn times. Anybody can say it that quickly, with that much depth, with that much accuracy, with that much confidence, knows what they're talking about. Absolutely. And so that is what will create a tremendous amount of certainty in your buyer. If you can drill deep into into the problem, describe the problem, describe the fix, talking not for education, not for comprehension, but as if you were talking to another mechanic, another expert, another in-person, another person in the industry, and they don't really care what it is you're saying that much. They just want to know that you know. That's it. And there's no, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of pay, I don't want to, you know, overdo all the subject. There's, there's other things I want to get into, you know, maybe pre-wired ideas or whatever you, you want to talk about, but there's no um, amount of depth that you can't go to. You want to give them that sense. It's almost like uh, if you're buying a million dollars of servers for your company, right? And you, um, you know, they're they're selling you the servers, and they do the Oracle software, and it's uh, you know hooks up to the cloud, and but you know this is where you're going to store all your SaaS software or whatever. And then you ask a technical question, you know, like, hey, what's the security protocol? And then they bring on Jim, the security guy, right? And he just goes. You can just see this in your mind. You know, he just starts talking security, which what you're scared, it's going to go on for 30 minutes, right? And and eventually you just go, okay, okay, we got it. We got it. The, you guys have the latest absolute security protocol. Jim, you talk to our security guy, but let's keep going with the meeting. Correct. It creates this confidence that you're the expert and the things that you say you'll do can be done by you and will be done. So certainty. And, and Orrin, it's also, it's not a data dump. In the case of the security advisor, it's not a data dump. It's something stated concisely, as you say, within two, three hundred words, within yeah. a minute, whatever it may be, to demonstrate, I got this. I've I done this a hundred times. Here it is. You're not, you're not going to stump me. That's on right. That's right. My By the way, you mentioned pre-wired receptors, and you talk about three of them. There was threat, reward, and fairness. And again, you throw in a nice little winter is coming, you know, so you got some, you know, uh, Game of Thrones going on there. So, you know, Otzi, Vinny, Game of Thrones, you're going good. Talk to us about pre-wired receptors. Yeah, let me back up a little bit on this topic. Uh, so I'm driving down the coast in my car. By the way, are you a car guy? I am not, but I enjoy looking at them. How's that? Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, where, where, were you, where are you based out of? Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, Atlanta. So you're right near me. I'm in here in uh, Carlsbad, California. Okay. But when you come by, <laughs> come by my car museum or whatever you want to call it uh, and check out some cars. So I'm driving down the coast in one of my cars. I'm listening to NPR in the background. It's just droning on. And suddenly I perk up and they're talking about substance addiction. Right. And um, it's nothing I know anything about. And they start talking about cocaine, also something I know nothing about. But they, it, it, they had a scientist on and apparently Cocaine is not this chemical or substance that just the brain has never seen before and it drives you bonkers because it's this foreign substance. It's actually a substance that it understands and has receptors for. So the cocaine finds whatever the cocaine receptors in the brain and it mm -hmm. goes to them. It's just super saturates them. It's more cocaine than you'd ever get in the wild in nature, right? Because it's just manufactured. But the, but the brain knows what that stuff is, and it receives it, and it does what it's supposed to be doing. That's why it works, because there's receptors in the brain for it. So I started thinking, well, that's chemicals, but in my business, what if there's receptors for ideas? 
Mm-hmm. Started talking to Matt Nix, the showrunner from uh, Burn Notice. Right, and just an eight-season show, Hollywood guy, mm-hmm. real pitch guy, very, very experienced. And he said, "Yeah, you know, there's that's why there's only seven kinds of movies. That's it. If you have a different kind of plot, you ain't getting the movie deal. And it's man versus man, uh, man versus himself, man versus nature, man versus a bunch of men, uh, man versus woman, and maybe there's two other ones. If you don't have that theme, that pre-wired theme, you ain't getting a movie deal. Okay." So you break down any any movie, or you're you're the lobster, not Avengers: Infinity War. So I started thinking, okay, are there pre-wired ideas in the mind that if you could take your deal, your idea, your product, your service, and encapsulate it in this pre-wired thing, that it could just get in the brain and go like poop through a goose, it's mm-hmm. going in the mind and be accepted. And so we went around and around, and, and the ones that we researched and came up with, which you mentioned them. Winter is coming. That is a pre-wired idea that human beings immediately snap to attention and and don't um, argue with. It's a threat. It's a, the threat's approaching. There's something coming our way. Something is coming. Something wicked this comes way this comes. way. Yeah, <laughs> it's it something wicked this way comes. That's right. Something wicked this way comes. And that that's a title. It's weird, but we understand it immediately. Human language was built to communicate information about danger, not about SaaS software, API plugins with accounting, uh, um, you know, exporting and Excel capabilities. That is yeah. not what language was designed to do. It was designed to go, fuck! I need <laughs> to go. It's that fight, flight, or freeze, right? right. It's one of those right. things. It's that threat. That's, don't eat those berries! Right. Don't go to that village! Like we say, we have a five-year-old. We say don't so easily more than I love you or that's great or, uh, hey, sugar, you know, you really did a good job. But don't, that's easy. Mm-hmm. That's what language was def- de- designed for. So people uh, people are very responsive to there is a change coming that is an environmental danger. And it's going to make you and your business, uh, uh, it's going to harm you and your business, Right. And so uh, the reason I said winter is coming is for if you've watched Game of Thrones, you don't have to watch it to understand this. But they have so many characters in so many plot twists, in so many cross character arcs, in so many narrative uh, constructs that eventually it just gets so busy and convoluted. You don't know what the hell is going on. So what do they do? They go, winter is coming. It's going to get cold. And this reorganizes everything, all the plots, all the characters, all the twists, all the sequences into one easy to understand idea. If you don't get some food and some friends and find some shelter, you're going to die. So, okay, Oren, nice rant. How do I do this in sales and business? So think about it this way. When stadium theaters came into a market, um, probably in the early 80s, not not you young guys, Victor, uh, you know, who who are used to sitting, seating, seating, like they bring you sushi and you press a button and you get a beer. And the By the way, I think we're about the same age. So but thank you for thinking I'm younger than that. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, you, you young kids. I'm just talking about the crappy stadium seating. There was a plastic seat, but that it was higher than the seat in front of it. Listen, if you owned eight theaters in Poughkeepsie, in Newark, Delaware, in 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 Pittsburgh, right? And stadium seating came to your market, you get wiped out. 
because the flat seating was horrible and the stadium right. seating was an absolute nuclear winter for anybody who had a regular theater. So if you're a salesperson in that industry, you say, listen, stadium seating is coming to your market. It's eight months away. You have eight months to prepare before you are absolutely wiped out. I'm the number one mm -hmm. uh, seat consultant in the East and Midwest. I do more theaters than anybody else, right? It's a tight margin, but I can help you retrofit before those stadium uh, uh, theaters are turned on, and that will give you a chance for survival in the new world order. And, and what you're doing, Oren, is obviously, I think, you know, we both know Matt Dixon, and I think in his book he called it emotional drowning. In your case, it's just a threat. Winter is coming, and that's really just doomsday-like. Something's it, coming into the market, and that's one way of grabbing their attention and activating that part of the brain, the amygdala, that says, okay, we're threatened. I'm ready to listen it, it, to you. Yeah, it has to be real. In the old days, I think Tom Hopkins said, hey, uh, you know, light a fire and sell them fire extinguishers. Right. This is a little bit different. Uh, and also in Pitch Anything, I talked about uh, uh, showing to people that trends are changing. But what I found is, and, th and that works, but what I found is people, uh, especially entrepreneurs, especially CEOs, they're doing yourself as they think they can get around a trend. They think they can get around a certain kind of problem. So when you make it an existential, universal threat, winter is coming, that nobody's going to get away from, then they have to make a decision. Yeah. Blockbuster is an example who didn't see winter coming. Blockbuster, RIM, Xerox. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I wrote in the book, Microsoft, now the most valuable company on earth, was almost the least valuable company on earth. They just, by the seat of their pants, uh, uh, shifted from on-prem or physical computing to the cloud. Barely made it, you know. But but they jumped that gap. One of the few companies. So so winter is coming is is a pre-wired idea. And and if you're asking, if you're listening, saying, well, how do I use that idea in my industry? In your industry, you have uh, you certainly would have tariffs. You would have tax regulations. You would have real estate regulations. Um, in SaaS software, you had AI and machine learning. The machines are coming. There's in your industry. Give me three minutes. I work in you know, like you. I work in every single industry. I have multiple clients and companies. It, there's 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 not something I haven't worked on. From from rocket engines, you know, all the way to SaaS software. And, you know, I haven't worked on birthday cakes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but but your your point is there's always a threat. No matter what industry, all, your no job is identified. That you could mention. Yeah. That I can't. And not even knowing, you know, be working in an industry every day that I can't mention a threat that I know is active in that industry. So you, anyway, so you, so you have to highlight because that's a pre-wired idea. Threats must be paid attention to, right? You must spend money and time and resources to get around them. And right. that's what activates people in your direction. And so then the second one was the reward. And yeah, I think, so I think people don't give enough reward, a high enough reward. Hey, we can get you a 10% ROI. We can improve profitability. Uh, or you see a lot of this today, 10x and 5x, right? And and my sense of it is human beings really pay attention and start getting motivated when they can double. Mm -hmm. When they can right. double something, then they can, then they really get motivated to take action. Because you said you, know, you, can, you can 2x it or you have it, right? 2x your revenue yeah. or have your cost. Take your pick. So, so I have friends who run e-commerce companies, right? And they're, they're, as you know, their standard state is 30% discount, right? 
But if they really want to move the deal at a holiday, they got to move to half off. Mm-hmm. And that's what moves it. So either double right. or half. So we have to learn how to put what we have in context of a larger um, of value. And I, and I like that because one of the statements, and you, and you just said it briefly, and I was kind of like disappointed you didn't expand on it, was switching costs. When you're talking to a customer yeah. and you're trying to unseat an incumbent, right? Switching costs is a big deal. Yeah. And yeah. So, so combining threat and reward of switching, I thought was interesting. Yeah. So uh, the the no, no matter what the case is, you have to think about um, somebody has to take a lot of activity to stop what they're doing and start working with you. You know, this sort of crossing the chasm, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Moore uh, thinking. And so it's not just that you offer something better, but it has to be overwhelmingly better. That's funny. I mean, uh, uh, I was just talking, offering chapter one of Flip the Script at OrenClaff.com. And my partner goes, oh, offer them something, you know, that, that is super compelling. I go, okay, how about chapter one and chapter two? He's like, no, uh, you know, offer something that I would want, <laughs> right? So... Uh, you know, we're going to offer people a half day with me. We're going to fly them out. We're going to put them in a hotel. Like, mm-hmm. like value today has to be overwhelmingly compelling, double or more than for people to even notice. Today. For people to yeah, even notice, they even notice. There's just there's yeah. just so many offers everywhere. You know, and and the status quo, the state of the art is thirty percent off. That's that's the opening gambit. That's it's, right. Whose fault is that? Amazon. You know, so blinds companies. Shoe companies, car companies, um, uh, footwear companies. Uh, well, I said that you know, athletic wear companies, uh, Home Depot. Everything is thirty percent off. It's just not enough to go. Right. I've noticed that. About it. We've even noticed that when we do um, when we're selling something online, if it isn't at least thirty percent, it's not moving the needle. So yeah. I, I so, want so double, double yeah. somebody's you know experience, and and that's when people really start paying attention. Right. I, I want to go to my favorite chapter. I'm going yeah. to go to it, which is chapter six. Yeah. What, Leveraging what pessimism. Chapters? Because I, th- I think in this chapter, you know, all the, all the material before that is great. It sets it up. By the way, I recommend that you read his first book, Pitch Anything, because then it kind of layers nicely into this one. You go, okay, I got his mindset. I got his headspace. Now I can enjoy more of the scripts as we talked about. But when I got to, you know, you made my head just kind of, you know, kind of cock a little bit. When, you, when I got to chapter six, I go, leveraging pessimism. Right there, I was like, what the hell does that mean? Right? And I'm reading this chapter, and I'm going, oh, my God, I love this chapter because you you were able to, I guess, articulate ideas that maybe people use but were never really stated. And when you yeah. use phrases like, you know, uh, you had a, here, I even commented, uh, I said, the possibility of failure enhances a buyer's motivation to act which seems like a total contradiction. Yeah. So I'm going to let you take it from there because I want you to touch on leveraging pessimism, but also you gave a great example, and I think the bike example was just brilliant about, you know, invisible fences. Yeah. And so, you know, you know, take us through that as best you can. And I'm, and I'm telling you right now, pick up the book. Pick up the book. It's just that simple. So the issue is that as salespeople, or even if you're not a professional sales salesperson, you have to go in and you're an engineer. You got to get resources. You got to get budget. You know, sometimes you're called in to help get a customer. What happens is there's always well, maybe not in my pitches. I'm pretty good at it, but more than often you'll hear objections. Okay, 
And what people do is they either prepare for objections or they will extemporaneously you know, on the spot try and overcome the objection, right? And overcoming the objection to sort of pat down the buyer's concerns uh, doesn't have the desired effect. Nobody, I, I mean, have you ever made a sale by overcoming objections and felt like, like you got the objections to go away by answering them? By the way, the, the science backs what you're saying. You oh, know, okay. that once, once something yeah. is verbally stated, an objection, yeah. the client is less likely to move back from that position. In other words, they've taken a position. Now you're trying to explain why it's not true. And now yeah. you're on the defensive. Yeah. And it puts you in a needy position. Uh, and so <laughs> Needy's good. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it does. What, what really the objections are, are they're saying, look, I need to put something in between me and you because I don't want to go ahead, right? I have, I don't know what it is because the objections are never really objections. You know, when you really get down into them, yep. what they are is there's somebody trying to draw, uh, get a buffer zone between you and them. They're going, I'm not ready to be in business with you, right? I have concerns. I haven't sorted out the concerns in my mind uh, yet, but I need some time to do that. I just know I don't feel right about going forward. That's mainly what objections are, right? Because they don't come out as an objection. They come out, if it's a real concern, it comes out as a question. Hey, look, you know, could we get 5% off? It puts us about the rate that we've been paying before. Uh, so real objections come out as questions. Objections uh, come out as I'm not ready to move forward. I have concerns. And so what I always try and do is let put the buyer into a situation where he is allowed to have the natural concerns that you would have in doing this kind of deal, right? Uh, so, so the buyer, until he's felt some negativity, some sense this could not work out, some sense of risk, he internally feels like something is wrong because everything has risk. See, I mean, pause, pause right there. Yeah. That, that, that's the one that got me. You know what I mean? Because I never looked at it that way. That if, if it sounds too, because it sounds too good to be true. Yeah, it, exactly. That's, that, that's the cliche. It sounds too good to be true. Most pitches, salespeople trigger that feeling. This is awesome. Where's the catch? Now, it's funny. Uh, you're obviously familiar with this term due diligence, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're in the same age category, like, 110 but uh we, but but in in dog years in dog years uh but so i work in finance and a lot of it's legal and my, you know my whole career i've been using this word due diligence but it was really a esoteric in industry legal term for a long time but now it seemed to like worked its way into popular culture and i hear you know two housewives in minnesota buying a refrigerator and one says to the next have you done your due diligence <laughs> Right. It's just like this. I'm like, shit, the world has become so hard. Housewives are doing due diligence on washing machines. People have this sense because the, the internet allows it to be done. So, oh, I'm going to go to the wire cutter, right? I'm going to go to Yelp. I'm, you know, I got to do my diligence and they're going to do it. And they're going to find what the juxtaposition or the negatives are, weigh the negatives and positives and make a decision. And they're going to find it. The they're information's out there. It. The information's out there. They're going to find it. Uh, and and so and and 
um, you know, AI and machine learning and SaaS, everything is getting better and better at, and, and by the way, the negatives, oh my God, you know, it's so frustrating. Uh, you know, my book has like, you know, a thousand, whatever, five star reviews and, but, but the negatives rise to the top so easily, you know, the people focus on the negatives. Now I have one, I didn't even read the book, but orange a jerk. He, you know, he beat me up when I was in high school, and that was so unfair, and I'm still mad today. I don't like his hair. You know, something, right? They didn't read the book! Yeah. So, wait, so, so how do we get here? So, so um, people expect things not to be perfect. They're going to look for a different pricing. They're going to look for the negatives. They're going to weigh it out in their mind until they've weighed out both sides. And, the, and, and this is the way I heard it said to me many, many years ago. Um, Two sides to every pancake, no matter how thin. That's right. That's right. And, and again, the, st the studies back you up. They, they did this. They've done these studies where somebody would do a pitch or a presentation, and you'll say, "We're good at this. We're good at this." Now, this right here, not our specialty, but we can work with somebody on you if you need that. And you go back and just mentioning that little negative, you know, increase their credibility. And, and, I, and as you play with this, I find some real fun ways to do this. You know, now in a very sophisticated, you know, we're having fun here, but unfortunately, you know, during my day job, basically I pitch finance to old white men in Newport Beach in glass towers. Uh, it's not the world's easiest environment to be pitching in. But, uh, you know, even in those environments, I've learned to say things like, listen, this is specifically what we do. We don't make websites. We don't cook pizza, Right. This is the only thing we do is we finance companies between 10 and $15 million in EBITDA. If you have anything else, that ain't us, right? And we start to build some contrast between what we do, mm -hmm. some, so, you know, and, and that you should have negativity about us. If you want us to do something other than exactly what we've stated here, right, we will not succeed. There's, and I will say, guys, there's lots of things we're not good at. And if you ask us to do those things, I'll immediately jump in and say, we can't do that. We'll fail you. So I introduce the idea that we can fail at things, right? And I draw a narrower and narrower frame or window around the things we can be successful at. And then, you know, and, and that's an important part of the process because then you can say to a buyer, hey, you're asking me to do something that we don't do. Mm -hmm. And especially that can be around a discount, right? Hey. And then they start hearing that. You're asking me to do something that we don't do. We don't discount, right? If you want some of the discounts, there's lots of people who are all over. I'll give you the name mm -hmm. of John over at the Costco version of us. He'll take this job in two seconds. I know him. He's a good guy, right? They'll do a good job for you. We don't do what they do. Right? And what I love about that is, is that it was when I read that, I go, it's a different way of like blocking an objection. And, you know, as you go into your examples, you talk about the yeah. invisible fences and you're yeah. almost like it's like a demarcation of what's inbound and what's out of bound. And now keep, you keep them inbound. I tried to write this. It was too hard to write this idea, but I can tell you about it. I, what I like to do is I like to build a sandbox with toys in it and drinks and food and everything, but, uh, with, but with boundaries. And then I put the buyer in that sandbox and they can do whatever the hell they want. In there, I don't try and control them. I'm telling them what to think, what to do, what to feel, or how to act. As long as they're in the sandbox that I've built. Now, if they're constantly getting out of the sandbox, I push them back in gently, right? But if they just don't want to be in there, they're not a customer. That right. way, I don't try and control anybody. I build the world 
for them to live in, the Truman Show, mm-hmm. and they could run around there and do anything they want, ask any question, offer any objection, have any kind of skepticism, concern, ask for things. They can run around there within the rules or the sandbox that I've established. That way, I don't have to control anybody, and you're never going, uh, you know, these these closes. Hey, Mr. Jones, uh, press hard. Fifth copy's yours. Yeah, <laughs> and you're never trying to close somebody. What, what trickery. I, yeah, and, and that's what I love about your approach because you're not trying to trick people. In fact, you're being quite, you know, I would just say a little more honest than I think you should be. But you're saying this is the way I sell. In other words, I'm putting it out there. Here are the boundaries. And again, I think you're you're. In other words, you're indirectly establishing credibility. They go, oh, he's being honest. But he's listen, not lying. It, yeah, if you have a formula to very early on say, uh, we don't we don't discount, okay? It's, that, that's one of our values, yeah. right? Uh, at, at the end of the sale, if you say, if, if you haven't laid out these boundaries and you say, oh, sorry, guys, we don't discount, right? Then people just go, oh, they're negotiating, right? Mm. It has no weight. It has no merit. It's not based on any value. It's not a boundary. But if you establish boundaries as Flip the Script shows you how to do early, then at the end when you come back to that value, it has weight and meaning and credibility. Right? And the reality is if your value is that you don't discount, if your value is that um, you don't chase a customer, Right for for you know more than thirty days, you won't spend more than thirty days signing an account. If your values are that you won't go into a bake off, right? You know five bids and choose about right. Then and if somebody const if you if you express those values in the way that I've shown you how to do it, and somebody is constantly trying to put you in a bake off, constantly trying to uh, um, discount or get a. Um, uh, uh, you know, money off, that, then it shows that you guys are not aligned in values. You, they cannot be your customer. You cannot take their money if they constantly want a discount, if they constantly want you to be in a bake-off, if they constantly want you to do more for them than they pay for uh, in terms of services. You, the, the value system allows you to see that in advance. Right. And, and I think, you know, when, when, you, when you're getting the discount question at the end, you didn't position value or you didn't send and, you, you know, set the boundaries early on. We don't do this. Part of our, you know, our, well, our, well, the way we roll. You know, people will ask for discounts, you know, all the way through because, sure. you, you know, I'll give, I'll give you a story uh, really quick. So we had a $10 million financing set up for a company that was not able to find money anywhere. They were in the sports goods industry. They developed a little uh, a product in sporting goods. We found an investor who agreed it was a bad deal, but eh, he was just super interested in that, in, in mountain biking, that little space. And he was willing to throw $10 million at it, right? And it was like a miracle find. There's no other investor on the planet for this company and they were gonna go out of business. We go to the meeting and the CEO raises the price of the company, right? From like 15 million to 18 million on the spot. And the investor's like, eh, I'm out, right? I was doing this on a whim. I was gonna give you $10 million. You know, I kind of view it as advertising. I love this space, but that's too high for me, I'm out. And so he leaves, the deal blows up, and I go, James, what was that? We never talked about that. Why did you raise the price in the middle of negotiation? He goes, eh, you never get what you don't ask for. But in reality, 
that can fatigue uh, um, that can fatigue buyers, you know, um, when you, uh, or, and buyers can fatigue sellers. So when you ask more for more than fair, right, then, um, you're showing you don't respect the values that you've put in place. And, and so people will go, Hey, uh, you never get what you don't ask for. But at some point when they keep asking for a discount and you said, I don't discount either beyond this level, it just shows they're not a real buyer. And by the way, that was chapter four. I was looking up real quickly here because you talk about the a, a receptor of fairness, and yeah. you cover that also. And yeah. so, let, let me let me zoom out a little bit on this book. If, if who should buy this book, Orn? You know, when you were writing this book, who should buy this book? I mean, I if you're a salesperson this, and you're selling uh, long sales cycle B two B stuff, I'm like, yeah, this is your book. Yeah. Who did it, you write this book for? Sure. If you're the kind of salesperson that is interested in unpacking the social dynamics of what's really going on, you probably know how to win deals, you're, you do win deals, you've got a good pitch, you've got a good closing cycle, you can convert, right? But you're in situations that um, you're not really sure what's going on. I think we've unpacked what's going on beneath the surface. So one, you can see things happening that you didn't know were happening. Two. You can get tools to start to fix the problems those things are doing. And three, um, you can see how examples of those tools being used. So that's for you if you're an experienced salesperson. However, if you're, you know, like I said, a, a CEO, tech CEO, or an engineer, or somebody who's not in selling situations all the time, I think Flip the Script just gives you a formula you can follow, right? Use insider language. Uh, show them that you're an expert. Let them know. Uh, give, put your ideas in very easy to understand pre-wired ideas. Um, um, the, the, stop saying that you're the only one that can do this thing. Show them that your solution is about the same as everybody else's, but better in the ways that are important. And using the scripts for these things so, so somebody who doesn't sell all the time can follow this blueprint and just never have to say, so what do you think? Is this something you'd be interested in? Should we move forward? And so that's when sales gets cheesy, right? It's easy to give a sales presentation, the ideas, the features, the benefits, the value, who you are, um, the, you know, the big idea, the uh, industry awards, what your product looks like, the demo, that's all easy. When it gets hard is when you go, so what do you think? You'd be interested in And they go, eh, you know, send us the information. Now sales gets hard because you feel cheesy. Right, right. Because the way that most people control buyer is through discounting. Hey, meeting's over. Wait a second. If we could get the price right. Yep, immediately. In other the words, free. And, and again, what I like about your, the conversation, what I like about your book, you really frame it from the beginning. It's almost that like taking control from the beginning. And I want to go through some real quick. I got in a book, which is kind of an outline you gave. I'll go through it real quick as a teaser sure. for anybody listening to this. You talked about the buyer's formula, right? I've done this yeah. many times for my client. Then you talk about ways to fail. You talk about you creating boundaries. Three was counterintuitive ways to fail, which I thought was good. The bike example, I'm telling you, the bike example by itself, that whole script was gold, yeah. I thought. List obvious action, uh, you know, 
list uh, less obvious hacks, hand over autonomy, which was a big one for me. Well, yeah. you talked about you shrugged and you said, eh, that's what I would do. You know, you talk about this whole detachment process where you're not chasing the sale. Okay. And I know right now, if you listen to this, you're kind of getting what I'm saying, but I'm telling you, when you read the book, you'll see that Orrin has laid it out in such a way you go, I get it. It's a different mindset. What I love about it, Orrin, is that it's not desperate selling. Do you know what I mean? It's not it, begging for the sale. That's what you're trying to help folks do. You know, one of the best salesmen I ever met in the world was up at Whistler at the ski, mm -hmm. uh, one of the ski little ski shops in Whistler. And, and this guy looks like he lives on the mountain and snowboards, you know, 250 days a year. Mm -hmm. And he's got, you know, Rasta and tattoos and a bearing in his nose and the right shorts. <laughs> and, and he's just... You just look at him and you go, that's a world champion snowboarder. No question. Right. And, and, it, and so, you know, I'm picking up a snowboard. And he's like, Hey, what are you trying to do? Right. So, well, you know, we come 10, 15 times a year. I go for the weekend. I'd like to get a little bit in the rail park. And he starts taking me through all this insider uh, thinking of how a championship snowboarder would choose a snowboard to do what I want to do. And at the end of it, you know, so so he's going, hey, you know, the shape of the board and the dip of the board and make sure, you know, how much to spend on the board. And then he goes, eh, that's what I would do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm saying like, what? I'm a, what idiot like me wouldn't do what he just said. What this guy. And it wasn't do. a hard close and it wasn't a hard close. And he literally goes, you know, they got this, you know, they got a couple boards uh, down the road at, you know, Sports Chalet. Uh, you could get something in the seven, $800 range if that's what you really want. Um, but, you know, you tell me I got to get to the next customer. Like, yeah, I want this one. Yeah. He demonstrated an expertise. By, by taking me through how he would buy a snowboard. There's the key. How the, a professional try, would solve my problem for himself was really the key. When and I read that, your, when, a huge when I read your example about, you know, the guy talking about the bike, you don't want to buy the carbon fiber. That's if you just want to shave off two seconds off, you know, it's really not you. And, and immediately when I was reading that in one of your chapters, I felt like the guy was standing next to me. He yeah. wasn't standing in front of me trying to pitch me. He was standing yeah. next to me. And then he would say, he just said, eh, that's what I would do. That's what I would do. And, and it, it's, it's really cool. So this book is full of, ways to uh counterintuitive ways to end a presentation where you think you'd be at risk of the buyer just walking out right but they will stick with you and look for ways to buy if you do things in this in this progression because you will have really gotten rid of non-buyers along the way mm -hmm. and you're really left with people who are looking for a way for you to solve their problem and I think at the end of the day, the reason I say you can close every sale with this, because this, this, you know, flip the script washes out people who would not be a good customer with you. And it leaves you to focus on the people who you should be working with. And that's why the conversion or the close rate is so high with this system. And I think as you go through it, Orrin, well said, is that you also talk, and I'll summarize it this way, you talk about how do you become that compelling person yeah. that people want to listen to. And as yeah. you say, pre-qualify people who shouldn't be your customers, keep the ones that should be, but be compelling enough where they come to you and says, okay, well, well, well tell me more about that. Okay. I think that, you... that chapter is really, 
in, in some ways, I wanted that to be the first chapter, how to be compelling. But I just I, I couldn't move it all the way to the front. When you started moving things, it, it, it started uh, not reading correct. That chapter is where it should be. But, but in some ways, that's the first one to read is how to be compelling because I think what happens is new salespeople see other salespeople and they go, oh, I got to be like Orrin. I got to be like Victor. I got to be like Tom, Joe, Prajish, whatever, right? And, and the reality is the more you try and be like someone else because they're compelling, the less compelling you are. That's correct. I mean, if there is not, you know, the, the line between good and evil travels through the center of the human heart. If you can't expose to people what is in your heart, what you believe in, what you're anchored to, where your passion is, right, and and be believable as a person, mm-hmm. then you can't sell. Anytime I find myself being like somebody else, no matter how good the offer is, no matter how good the value proposition is, no matter how good the discount is, something is wrong in the sale because they don't believe in me. And they can sense it. They'll pick it up. They can sense Absolutely. it. They can sense it. Uh, a guy by the name of Mark Sanborn said something years ago that I just thought was powerful. He says, you know, imitate to learn. And then he said, innovate to earn. Yeah. The, the imitate to learn is like, I want to copy. I want to learn what Orn knows. I want to use his strategy. Okay, great. Imitate him, learn it, and then innovate it using your style so you can earn more. And this is the problem with the old scripts is they were scripts. Right. There were things that you would say. That's a conundrum right there. That's the yeah, problem with these scripts. scripts, scripts. Are things to do. Yeah. Right. So these are ways to behave within who you are as the incredible person that you are with your values, your belief systems, your hard work, your experiences, your family, your devotion, your hobbies, your passions, whatever it is. All of that make up the frame and the lens of, of who you are. So these are scripts of what to do with your particular personality. The old scripts that you and I were raised on were things to say. And they many times didn't work because they were Tom Hopkins or they were Zig Ziglar or they were Tony Robbins or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's the things those guys would say in those situations. But Warren and Victor should not be saying them ever because they're not right for us to say, uh, um, you know, so Mr. Jones, uh, press hard, fifth cup is yours, and handing somebody a pen. Mm. I, in a million years, I'll never get that to work because that's not part of my personality. It isn't. And, I, and I've seen, you know, I, I think, and I don't like to disparage sales strategies because I think everything has its place and its season, right? And so I think, you know, in what I call low transactional sales, sell me a pen. Sure, yeah, sure. You know what I, I mean? mean? This, but I, I hate that stuff. Sell me yeah, a pen. Yeah, right? that whole thing. And so there, there's these small things that are low risk that you can buy for 10 to 15 bucks. And maybe those strategies will work. But when you start moving into big dollars, longer sales cycles, as you say, you know, the average, uh, there was a study that it takes about, what is it, 11 decision makers now to make a, a decision on some big deal, whatever it may be. So it's becoming more complex. You can't use that stuff anymore. Your approach, the stuff, the stuff you're teaching in the book, plus pitch anything, I think are yeah. more aligned with reality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the you know one one of the values uh, that I have, you know, for example, is this: uh, I need to know everybody who's in the decision making process because I uh, we put a lot into our stories and our pitches. I don't believe you can go pitch this as well as we can, right? And and so I need to know uh, 
and, and, and that's why it's so important to have something intriguing left over. So this is a big problem that I see salespeople and new salespeople have today is they give the whole pitch to somebody who cannot give you the agreement, the contract, the money, the answer. You always have to leave something in reserve until you've got the decision makers and the decision makers have agreed to make a decision. Yeah, Orrin, Orrin, you just triggered me, and, and thank you for that. But you just triggered me. I was reading the one story about, and I'm going to get the company wrong, but the 70-year-old the guy that walks in your office, you're supposed to do yeah. some some, yeah. you know, some mentorship. Yeah. And the guy had like $1.2 billion worth of contracts or whatever it was. It's a great story. It's a, it's, it's a fantastic yeah. story. But what I loved in there is when you give the example of the pitch, now you, you again, what I love about the book is you're in, you're in the game. You're in the room with Orrin. And you can even see the old guy off to the side listening to what's going on. And you do the whole spiel and you talk about how much time and effort you put into preparing for that presentation. You know, yeah. talk to me a little bit about that because I was stunned. I got to be honest. I was like, my God, this, he has to study this thing. This is like, you know, this is like DNA stuff, genome codes, whatever, stuff I don't even know. And yeah. so, you know, walk me through trying to understand somebody else's, because remember, you're trying to get money for other people. Yeah, you got to understand their business, but you also got to understand the objections and the pushbacks you're going to get from who you're presenting to, and then you got to marry those two and actually sound like you know what the hell you're babbling about. So here's two things uh, to put a fine point on that. One is a word I, I don't think I use in the book, but it's important for people to understand is infotainment. I believe the pitch today is entertainment because the information you can get very easily. Mm -hmm. And an information pitch can be done in just a few minutes. It should be interesting, intriguing, entertaining. Now I'm talking about dancing and singing and you know and and gimmicks, but it should be fascinating, like a TED talk. Mm -hmm. So the pitch should be entertaining, and so you are giving a performance. And now when I think about it, uh, and I show to all my audiences a clip of a the a comedian, right? And and the comedian's going, is a guy from Canada, he's like, yeah, I don't show the whole clip to tell the joke, but. He's just sitting there and he's going, yeah, me and my friends, Bart and Frank, you know, big Frank, he weighs like 300 pounds. So anyway, we drive across the Canadian border, we get to Florida, right? And big Frank is hungry. So we go into the saloon and it's just this flowing and it's a setup for a joke. But I stop it for the audience and I go, do you understand this guy? You, this, see how natural this guy just seems like he's sitting down and just off the cuff telling the story just thought of, right? But it's the lead in to some huge joke. Right. right. He's done this. Ah, so me and Frank, we get Carl and say, hey, let's go to Florida. Sure. Why not, Frank? Let's go. He's done that five, six hundred times. Right. Right. And to make something feel like you're doing it there for the first time, it's off the cuff. You're just delivering it with charm and personality takes an incredible amount of practice. So if comedians, if actors, if, te you know, TED performers, if, you know, someone like you do it. When preparation performers put into their art, then you ask why salespeople and presenters wing it makes no sense. And so I definitely uh, don't believe in, in memorizing a sales pitch word for word, but I do believe turning it into an act, something that you can own and perform and leaves people wowed. And I give you an example. I went in to give a pitch for services to a board of directors uh, for a company, you know, and there's like, Eight out of 10 of them were there. And I get to the end of the pitch and the proposal, and one of the guys starts going, 
And they all chime in and start clapping. They're like, that was amazing. Hey, can we get Bob and Tom who weren't here? If we dial them in on Skype, can you do that again? That was and the chairman of the board goes, hey, what are you doing? We don't applaud our vendors. Like we, <laughs> right? we yeah. tell them thanks and to leave. And, and so uh, when somebody can enjoy your pitch as a performance because you know it, you can give it casually with charm and charisma, uh, it really becomes something special. And again, other fields practice way more than you would ever imagine. Right. And I just feel like salespeople and pitch guys don't practice at all. I'm going to push back. I don't like infotainment because that sounds too like, you know, what I, sure. what I do love That's is I, I do love the value and compelling. It's yeah. got value. But yeah. damn it, I'm making it compelling. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it doesn't have to be funny, right? It just has to be like, where's he going? What, what is, where, where's he well, taking Ted me? Well, TED Talks, you know, TED Talks are entertaining, but they're not all funny. You know, right. some are, are dead serious. Right. Uh, so, so that's what I use as my model. It's a good uh, model. Is when somebody comes in and they feel like they just were at a TED Talk. But how right? do you do it, Orrin? In, in that example where you had to learn, you know, this Geno code business from this 70-year-old guy, and then you got to present to investors who are maybe savvy in that market space. You know, how did you prepare for that? Yeah, yeah, reps, you know, you got to put in the time. That's what I'm saying. Like salespeople do not put in the reps. They think I know the information, right? Um, I'm not getting paid to do this, right? A lot of times it's a no. I'm just going to go in there and wing it. When you look at other fields, especially comedians, especially, so one way I got down this rabbit hole is I went to the internet and I looked up how do actors memorize their lines. And I expected to find a system there. Somebody's selling this, you know, I'll join a course. Somebody, you know what? I'm laughing only because I've asked actors that question almost every time I meet one. Dude, how do you memorize your lines? Because I want to be able to do that because I don't have that. Think, think of Goodwill Hunting, right? Yeah, some, of, some of the yeah, some of the know, lines. Lines like you know go on for minutes of complex information. So I expected there to be a system, you know the the Kaplinsky method, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and there's nothing, right? Yeah. Here's how they memorize their lines. Uh, they repeat them. They shame the friends. They do them in the mirror. They re record themselves. They watch themselves. They listen to it over they, and over again. They listen over it again. They uh, they do the lines. They take a nap. They wake up. They do it again. They spend days doing it. These are our competitors yep. in ways. You know, people who are giving performances for money, mm. and they are dedicated to the art form of their field. And when I started dedicating to giving a talk, a presentation mm -hmm. that that had a big idea that created intrigue, right? That talked about problems that, that made people put down their phones, that raised the stakes, that used a narrative arc uh, and, and you know, put down their phones, closed their laptops and paid attention. Oh. As I started getting payoff for paying attention to storytelling and practice, then uh, uh, I really started making millions of dollars with that. And now I'm dedicated to, you know, as you said, that working out a pitch, making it a performance so people are wowed by it. And they have to be wowed. And by the way, so, so we're at the same school. I watch comedians a lot. Ted oh, talks terrific. Yeah, but I like comedians. Yeah. Uh, my favorite is Bill Burr. I don't know if you've seen oh, Bill yeah. Burr. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I listen to the Monday podcast, yeah. Yeah, the way he uh, – his stand-up, the way he sets up the arc of a story – yeah. And then he does a callback, ties it down, whatever it may be. You realize, okay, this guy's really thought through. And he knows what every hesitation means, every pause yeah. means. You know, every hanging on the mic for a second, not saying a thing, he knows what it means. 
And that's what you're saying, essentially. You got to put in your the reps. So, let me let me share this, which I didn't put in the book. Uh, maybe this is the next book, but I, I don't usually do this on. But but I want to share this technology. The way to think about your pitch, your sales presentation, I believe, is in three layers. And this is how you get good at it and answer your question. At the bottom, there's the content layer. Until you know, right? Because you can make a lot of sales just being monochromatic, delivering the information, the right information, mm -hmm. in the order that the mind of the buyer wants it, in the right amount of detail. That's the content layer. And you can win deals, you can raise money, and you can have a career and feed your family on just the content layer. Now, if you put on top of that a performance layer, pace, tone, speed, charisma, humor, ideas, right? Now you put a performance layer on top of the content layer and you're winning either hard to win deals or you're beating other guys out, okay? So that's good, that's, and you can have a whole career. And then you put my stuff on top of that, the control layer, how to control what happens Within that pitch or within that I like that. that. Sale. I, I got a bit. I like that. I love the yeah. way. That, that should be your yeah. third book, man. Just yeah, that's it. That so layer. content layer, performance yeah. layer, control layer. Yeah, Same I've always looked at those together. That makes you a complete sales guy. Yeah, because I've always looked at his content layer, and then I always I always said one, two, content and delivery system, but I never looked at it as a performance layer, and yeah. then the control layer to control the narrative, as you say, the invisible fences, which is why I want people to read the book just for that section alone was is brilliant all right i love that man third book there it is boom all right all right all right Orin, man i want to thank you for your time Orin. this has been great um congratulations on the book again uh, the book is called flip the script uh available august 13th at least on amazon it is go run out get a copy worth the money buy an extra one from somebody else they'll thank you for it Orin, thank you very much thank you i appreciate it <laughs>